I was once um, teaching this particular parable, the feeding of the 5,000, in a primary school uh, local to us in Kingston. And I wanted to show them, try and get them to grasp a little bit of how amazing this miracle was. So uh, I brought in some props, and assuming that the loaves in this story are actually sort of pita breads, okay, that seems reasonable, I brought in a pita bread, and I decided we'd try and cut up the pita bread into a thousand pieces. So obviously, you know, five pita breads, five thousand pieces each. So I, I cut it uh, a tenth off of it. Yep, yeah, do the maths with me. <laughs> okay, tenth of it, and then cut that piece into a tenth of the size that that was. And that meant that I just needed to get that little piece into ten pieces and give them out. And so we tried to do that. We couldn't actually get it smaller, smaller than a fifth of that piece with a pita bread. It would just have been far too small. It was so, so tiny. I was handing to each of the children just a few crumbs. And then I tried to I asked them, you know, okay, eat your nice meal there. And how many of you, if you've been really hungry today, would that have completely satisfied you, filled you up? And obviously, from the cooperative children was a lot of shaking of heads. No, it wouldn't have done that. Of course, there's always one smart, you know, yeah, I'm stuffed. Anyway. And then I said to them, you know, that, it, that was at least twice the amount that Jesus had to work with, with these people in this crowd. It makes you think, doesn't it? Obviously, this was a miracle. It's, it's fascinating to me that some people don't think that this was a miracle. They try to if you try to explain it by any other means, it becomes absurd, doesn't it? It's just silliness. Not only were there also women and children present on this particular day, making the group probably far larger than 5,000, but also, we read in uh, verse 43 there, have a look, that there were 12 basketfuls of scraps picked up. I mean, that's more than you started with anyway. This was a supernatural event, wasn't it? Jesus made something out of nothing. There's no escaping it. He made something out of nothing. He created from nothing. There's a hint there as to who Jesus is, isn't there? Only one can create out of nothing. It's something only God can do. But it was far more than just a wonderful miracle that happened that day. And that's what I want us... This is where we need to start switching our brains on and working a little bit with what we've got in front of us. The way Mark reports this story is absolutely laden with symbols that you're supposed to pick up. So we're going to look at those a little bit this morning. It would, it would not have been possible to be a Jewish person sitting there on the grass that day and to miss these symbols. You just would have known what was going on. See, they would have known their proud history, the proud history of their nation, the stories of the founding of Israel. And maybe you know the stories too. So under their great founding leader, Moses, God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. That's their story. It's a story of rescue, a story of redemption from slavery to freedom in the promised land. They knew the stories about that rescue. Painful toil under Pharaoh, who would not let them go. And then those ten horrific plagues that God sent against Egypt, finally ending in a visit from the angel of death. Do you remember? And then there was the crossing of the Red Sea, coming out of the land, crossed the sea on dry land. Then there was the receiving of the law at Mount Sinai, they all gathered around the mountain, the thunder, the lightning, the Ten Commandments. And then, the grumbling. The grumbling, part of their history. History of grumblers. Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Moses, 
weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you're bringing us out here? Did they need more space in the cemetery? We're thirsty, Moses. We're hungry, Moses. And so through Moses, God provided water from the rock. Remember? And also provided, this is where we're going to, bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. Manna. And it was a stunning miracle for them there in the wilderness. Think about it. They woke up one morning, we read, to find this strange substance all over the ground that they describe as looking like frost. Little flakes. Uh, It's like a breakfast cereal almost, I suppose. And it tasted like wafers made with honey. Imagine waking up in the morning and finding your driveway covered in Frosties. Yeah, quite amazing, wouldn't it? There in the middle of the wilderness, get the picture. In the middle of nowhere, they receive bread from heaven. And so Mark, being very intentional as he writes these things, makes some emphases for us. Verse 32, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, away from everyone. And then again in verse 35, look, this is a remote place, they say to Jesus. He's rubbing it in, isn't he? It's already very late. Send the people away to the surrounding countryside so they can buy something to eat. And so we have a feast, an all-you-can-eat fish sandwich buffet. And even more, which needs to be gathered into baskets at the end. And it all happens in the middle of the wilderness, in a solitary place, in the middle of nowhere. It's a miraculous abundance of miraculous bread, isn't it? And who does this remind you of, this Jesus, then? They might be thinking to themselves, well, it's Moses, isn't it? It's another one like Moses. This is big. Now, you remember, there was a a really great and exciting expectation bubbling around uh, in the countryside at the time. We just read about it earlier in this same chapter. People were speculating about who Jesus was. People were hoping that God would be sending his great Messiah King who would lead the people, much like Moses did, out of slavery, slavery to Rome, and into full possession of their land once more. There's a Moses hope going on in the people, isn't there? Someone like Moses. And this miracle gets repeated in all four of the Gospels. It's a, it's a big, important story, this. But when John reports the miraculous feeding of the multitudes in John chapter 6, he includes a further detail. John chapter 6, verse 15, you read that the people at this time, just after he's fed them, intended to take Jesus and make him their king by force. You see what's going on? And if that's not enough to get the reader on the track here, the Moses sort of track, the key verse in the passage is verse 34. Have a look at verse 34, and then we're going to turn and see something. So verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Why is that so significant? Well, Moses came to the end of his days just outside of the promised land. Maybe you know that story. God takes him up onto a mountain so he can look over the promised land, but he's not allowed to enter it. He gets a chance to see it from afar, and God takes him and shows him that, it all running out in front of him. And then in Numbers chapter 27, perhaps if you flick over to it, it would be really interesting to see. Numbers chapter 27, if you've got a Bible with you, and we'll read from verse 15. This is what Moses says to the Lord 
as he's shown the promised land. Numbers chapter 27, verse 15. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and to come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Do you think Mark's made his point enough? Have you got it? This whole event's got something, it's got Moses written all over it, hasn't it? Moses, the man who brought them out of slavery and the man who brought them the word of God. The man who gave them the law of God. God's good word, right? Good, you got all of that loaded into your heads now? So let's set the scene then. Now, if you've been coming regularly to these morning services, especially as we've been uh, going into chapter 6 here, you'll be aware that this chapter so far has been all about the preaching of God's word. Every story so far has been about preaching God's word. You've seen, and you've seen different responses. So you've seen Jesus in Nazareth, where God's word is dismissed because of the prejudices of the people. And then you've seen Jesus giving instruction to his disciples to go out and preach the word, and where the word is rejected, is not received, they're to shake the dust off of their feet. And then last time we had the story of Herod, a man who was, despite wanting to hear and loving to hear the word, was unable to respond to the word. So you've seen people dismissing, rejecting, and unable to respond to the word of God. And this next episode here, we've got here in front of us this morning, sees, shows us the desperate state of God's people when they don't have God's word preached to them and the urgent call for us to minister the gospel to God's people. Well, I'm breaking it up into four very simple headings here. Uh, three needs and then a supply, really, is what you see in this chapter. First of all, you see the disciples needing rest, then you've got the, the uh, crowds needing a shepherd. Maybe you spotted these as you're going through. The multitude needs feeding. And then there's a surprise as to where the supply comes from. A surprise. So the story starts with the return of the 12 apostles in verse 30. Have a look down with me. Verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and they reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they didn't have a chance to, to eat... He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. It's a joyful reunion after an exciting mission trip, isn't it? They'd gone out in pairs. Jesus had sent them out. They've had their adventures together, healing, casting out demons. And the one thing that Mark is specific about, did you see? Not surprisingly, he tells them about all the things they've taught because we're, we're thinking about teaching here, aren't we? But the whole scene is just so chaotic when they come to him. With people coming and going, Jesus realizes they're never, these, these guys are tired and they're never going to get any rest unless they come away for some R&R. So we get our first heading there. The disciples, they need rest. It's interesting to note that uh, Jesus cared for his disciples in this practical way, isn't it? He saw they needed rest. Those who are involved in ministry need rest. And I don't say this to justify myself having a day off. What concerns me more, really, is that, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm in here most days, and sometimes you, you, you start to think it's the same people that come to serve at everything throughout the week. 
There are some people in the church that just seem to be doing everything. And they look tired sometimes when they come in. There are certain people that just, they always put their hand up. They're always volunteering. And they're tired. They always seem to be there. I mean, it's great, isn't it? But we need to be looking after each other. And Jesus gives us a good model here, doesn't he? Listen, if someone looks tired, I mean, don't worry about me, but if someone looks tired, ask them. I always look tired. I've got children. Yeah, ask them, hey, are you getting enough rest? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you, getting, are you eating enough? It's worth asking each other. I mean, some people you don't need to ask that to. Again, you don't need to ask me if I'm eating enough. Do you need to get away? Here's the more important question, isn't it? Do you need to get away and spend a bit of time with Jesus? Do you need to do that? You're getting enough time with Jesus? Don't you love that line at the end of verse 31? It's beautiful, isn't it? Verse 31, what Jesus says to them. Come with me, says Jesus, by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Isn't that great? Maybe there's some of you here just need to underline that one in your Bibles. Yeah? You need to get away. Are you making time for that? To get away from disturbances, away from people, alone with Jesus and get some rest. That's the answer. That's the supply for that need, isn't it? And so they make for this solitary place. They get into the boat. They sail away, away from the disturbances, away from the hubbub, away from people, because you need to do that for a time. But it's just not their day, is it? It's not to be. Mark reports there for us as we read on through this story that uh, obviously you've got lots of different things happening here. Some of the crowd obviously see them leaving and they they judge where they're headed and they think, well, we could probably, if we get running now, you know, the able-bodied ones, let's run round and we can can be where they land. And then you've probably got others that have actually learnt, you can imagine it, can't you, learnt the shape of the sail of their boat. And they're sort of spying out from the hills, thinking, where's Jesus landing next? And they're heading down it. And as all this sort of migration of people goes, it starts to pick up people from the villages, right? And they're all coming out. Hey, Jesus is going to land down at, you know, the, the bit up there in the north. And so they're all gathering around. The net result is that this solitary place is no longer a solitary place when they arrive. It's like having the paparazzi following your every move, isn't it? No rest. When Jesus disembarks there, he's immediately aware of the needs of this great crowd that have arrived in front of him. The crowd, second need, the crowd needs a shepherd, says Jesus. Verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now, the word there used for compassion, perhaps you know, it's a very strong, it's a a gut word. When Jesus saw the people, it was like a knot in his stomach. Can you imagine that? A deep feeling in the pit of his stomach. It was a heartbreaking sight for Jesus to see a crowd of needy people waiting for him. And suddenly all ideas of rest and eating go out the window. There's a more pressing need, a desperate need. When sheep don't have a shepherd... It's sad, isn't it? They become lost. They become hungry. They become prey to all kinds of predators. I don't know if you remember, I I remarked something along these lines when we did the parable of the lost sheep last year. A sheep, a lost sheep, is essentially defenceless and delicious. That's what a lost sheep is. It's perilous. 
Jesus can't help himself, you see. Despite the tiredness, despite the disappointment of, of not getting the rest that he wanted for his disciples, in this situation, he just launches himself into service because he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, didn't he? And he began, we read, to teach them many things. It's a long teaching session. He's trying to address all the needs. And you can imagine as the sun is starting to go down and it's hours and hours into the teaching. I mean, it would have been engaging teaching, we know that. People would be riveted, listening to his every word, forgetting about the practical needs of food and rest. And so we get that next need that pops up. The multitude needs feeding. Verse 35, by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. That's an eminently sensible suggestion, isn't it? Jesus has obviously been teaching for so long that there's a danger of it getting dark before people can find any food. Now, it's, it's not like it is for us, is it? You know, when I've uh, had a, a late night, I've maybe been preaching in the Sunday evening, I'm feeling hungry on my way home, I just, I just pop into the chippy, I get a bag of chips on the way home. But this isn't Chesterfield. <laughs> in this remote area of first century Galilee, yeah, there's not going to be a KFC or equivalent on, on the street corner, is there? There's not going to be a 24-7 service station. These people are going to need to get to a town. And they're going to need to get there, if possible, before it's dark. And they're going to have to buy some bread. I mean, I don't know how big the towns are. Not very big towns. Th imagine thousands of people pitching up at a town, all wanting to get themselves... Uh, you know, they're hungry, been going all day, walking. Need a good meal. This has all the markings of a crisis brewing, actually, you know. There'll be some, some people who've got, who are wired that way. Have you met people like that who are just wired to do the whole health and safety and, uh, the, uh, <laughs> and all of these, these sort of risk analysis things? I mean, this is making them itch, isn't it, a story like this? It's brewing, isn't it? There's, there's going to be trouble here, and it's going to be our fault, and it's, we're going to be liable. And I, I wonder whether the disciples are starting to think that, and they're thinking, we need to, we need to remove this problem. This is, this is not our problem. We need to send, Jesus, send, send them. They need to look after themselves. And so you can almost understand the slightly rude tone of their response in verse 37 when Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. I mean, it's to be told that when you've got all this bubbling on in your heads, you give them something. Are you kidding? And so we get the, the surprise supply of this need. It's the shock statement in the story, really, isn't it? You give them something to eat. That's a shocker. No one's expecting that. Jesus has just said something which is frankly ridiculous to his disciples. He's asked them to do the impossible. And so they, you know, they, they respond as you'd expect. Where are we going to get that food from? Where are we going to get the money from, Jesus? It take eight months' salary for that. How can we afford it? You know, I'm the father of two little girls, and uh, I get a cold sweat when I think of them growing up and wanting to get married, and then, you know, with, with boys it's all right, isn't it? But with girls, I mean, you're going to have to pay for, I mean, thousands of people going to be feeding and, and, and all of the celebrations. Where do they get the money from? 
And they said to him, that would take eight months' wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread for them so everyone can get something to eat, Jesus? It's, it's, it's sort of a reasonable response. You, you know, you can understand that response. But we know how it turns out, don't we? Find out what we've got, he tells them. Go find out. Five loaves, two fish, they reply. And so Jesus organizes the people into groups, breaks the bread, gives thanks to God for it, and hands it over to the disciples to distribute, along with the fish. Now, I don't know what that would have looked like. It would have been wonderful. I guess there might have been some people in the crowd who didn't even know it had happened. Possibly. There'd be a lot of people who did, I guess. But imagine the surprise on the faces of the disciples when Jesus just keeps on pulling more out of the bag, just keeps on giving them some more to hand out. More and more and more. And they come back and he hands them another load to give out. I wonder if they started by rationing things out really, really carefully, thinking this is, I mean, this is a ridiculously small amount, but you know, we're going to have a go at this. We'll at least you know, be careful with the food. And then whether it ended up degenerating into, well, who wants some more? You know, anyone for another, another helping? It just seemed to keep on appearing. What we do know is that by the time they were done, verse 42, look, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. They, they, ate, they ate extravagantly. There's bits flying everywhere here. Plenty to eat. It wasn't just a between-meal snack to sustain them on their way. It was a satisfying meal. They left with full bellies, make, make, make no, no mistake. Had they wanted more, more would have been available. Now, I don't know uh, about you, I love going to buffet restaurants. Who likes going to buffet restaurants? They're great, aren't they? Great invention. But my approach to buffet restaurants has changed, uh, especially as I've entered my fifth decade. Like most young men, I used to see the sign, all you can eat, as a challenge, as an affront to my manhood, really. <laughs> Perhaps there's some, obviously some people who are relating to this. You know, some of them say, some of them will say, all you want. Yeah, that's kind of in the right territory, but all you can. Well, that just sounds like you want me to show you. <laughs> Shall I show you what I can? And I guess there'd have been more than one or two young men there that day. You know, with the, with the boots to fill. Almost the insatiable appetite that you get as a teenager. But all ate and were satisfied. All ate. And there were 12 good-sized doggy bags, remember? But of course, this miracle was not just about filling empty bellies. On a more fundamental level, remember, this whole incident is about something much deeper. It's about the spiritual need. That we have. It's about satisfying our spiritual appetite, our hunger for the Word of God. You see, all the other players in this story have kind of they've got it wrong, actually, haven't they? The crowds think that the most important thing they need is a military leader who will deliver them from Rome. But they're wrong. They're not thinking spiritually. Their bigger need is spiritual. The disciples think the most pressing need is the hunger of the people. A hunger that bread will satisfy. But Jesus knows that there's a spiritual hunger far, far more important. A need for the word of God. 
And for Jesus, please get this in this story, there is nothing more distressing here than a people who are starving and they're like lost and confused sheep in a desperate need of a shepherd who will feed their souls with God's word. That's what moves Jesus' heart, isn't it? He's not worried about physical hunger. When Jesus himself was starving in the wilderness, do you remember being tempted by Satan to turn stones into bread? How does he respond? It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. These people needed another Moses who would bring them that very word, a better Moses they needed, who would never die and who would bring them a better word from God, who would feed them with a bread that would last forever and satisfy completely. And that's what Jesus did for them. So let us not forget that this book, this gospel, Mark's gospel, written in those early founding days of the church, was, was something that was preached and passed on to us to learn from. And in this story, we have an overriding, overarching principle, don't we? It's to teach us about the importance, the priorities, what is really important here. That whenever God's word ceases to be taught in his church, his people will starve. They will spiritually be put into a precarious situation. And Satan knows it. I guess that's why church history is actually, if you think about it, is littered with attempts to keep faithful teaching out of the, out of the church, isn't it? You know, that really struck me. It really struck home when we did, we did a youth camp a couple of years back when it was the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation with Luther nailing his thesis to the, to the door in Wittenberg. And we ran a camp looking at the Reformation for a week had hundreds of teenagers there. We managed to get the use of a very ornate chapel at this military academy that we, at, we were at. It was a, an absolutely huge building, hard marble and decoration, shininess everywhere. Everything you said in that room echoed so much you could hardly make out a word that was being said from any distance. And uh, we, uh, we got one of the leaders at the camp to memorise a mass in Latin so that we could do this all authentically. Uh, we gathered all the teenagers into that room where they sat in front of someone preaching a Latin mass to them they didn't understand a word of. Then we brought in a Tetzel character. You know Tetzel, the guy, a penny in the coffer rings of soul from Purgatory Springs, remember? The heretic bloke, to preach on, uh, on purgatory. Uh, a nice fiery sermon on that. And as it all builds up, you, you, re you realise... In those medieval days, at the days at the threshold of the Reformation, look at the state the church was in. How did it get there? Because the devil doesn't want the word of God in the church of God. The people who didn't understand a word of what was going on around them. All of these things kept the Bible, the word of God, from God's people. And you know, in, think about our own history. In the late 14th and early 15th century... You could be executed in this country for having the Bible in your language, having any scripture in your language. Imagine that. Do you realize that? In the days of Wycliffe, if your children were, were, were found being able to recite the Lord's Prayer in English, you, you could be for the chop for that. They'd be on to you. The informants would report you. 
In the 16th century, we were still murdering Bible translators for trying to bring God's word to the people in their own language. It's staggering, isn't it? How on earth do we get to that in a, a country that's supposedly supposed to be a Christian, a Christian nation at the time? How do you get that? Because the devil doesn't want God's word in God's church. He wants God's people to starve. And we shouldn't be surprised then to find churches still today who are really only pretending to bring God's word to his people. I've been in many. I don't know about you. You know, brothers and sisters, we should come to church expecting to see this book open and taught to us, shouldn't we? Or we will starve. If we lose that, we will stray. We'll become weak. We'll get picked off by all sorts of spiritual predators. As I remarked earlier, the surprise in this story, though, is actually the solution, the solution to that. Jesus says to his disciples, and maybe you want to leave with these words ringing in your ears, you give them something to eat. You feed them. And of course, they couldn't. It was an impossible task for them. They couldn't feed them on their own anyway. But by bringing their meagre resources to Jesus, they could. They could feed them. Once heard a preacher say something like this. He said, the church can do all kinds of things with its own abilities. All kinds of things. But it cannot feed the sheep. Just can't do it. Not with our own abilities. It's true, isn't it? When a church stops feeding its sheep, it will necessarily change its focus to all the other things it can do. It will have all sorts of other goals and projects and aims. And you'll end up probably, maybe, possibly, with a state-of-the-art facility. Tons of charity work and confused sheep who don't know what to believe. That's what you'll get. And neither can a church save anyone by its own abilities. It doesn't matter how skillful a communicator you are or how passionate you are in what you say. The message of the cross is foolish. It is weak to the world that we, be- that we live in. A self-righteous world believes it's good enough already, doesn't need Jesus. A proud world doesn't feel the need for a saviour. But go to Jesus. Let him imbue that message with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it can save to the uttermost those who put their trust in Jesus. It becomes powerful. The surprise, though, of this story is that God chooses to use us to do this. He chooses to use you and me, feeble as we are. He uses us to be his hands and his feet and his mouth to do this work. You give them something to eat. If we want to be a church that's growing, if we want to be part of God's kingdom growing, if we want to feed and to nourish the spiritual life of the church, if you want to see that happening, You need to bring all of your abilities, all of your meager resources, all those little things that you can do, bring them to Jesus first. Bring them to him. Ask him to bless them. And so as I close, may I point out that this goes for us all. Please listen. Hear this. 
If you want to bless the spiritual life of the church, in fact, I would go so far as to say, if you want to do any good and faithful service in God's kingdom, you want to do anything like that, don't put yourself down. Don't play down your ability to do anything. Oh, all I've got is just a fish sandwich. Instead, bring what you have to Jesus. Bring it to him. Hand it over to him to use, to bless. Jesus can take a couple of fish sandwiches. He can feed a multitude with them. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If he can do that, he can certainly do the same with what you and I bring him. Let's pray. Our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, we gladly yield to you everything we have, everything we are. And we ask that you would please use our weakness, use our little pathetic abilities to feed your sheep, to feed your church, and to reach this needy world with that powerful gospel. Amen.